Welcome to Making the Historian, the podcast on one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. Today, I want to mark a milestone. Now, I realize that this is the season of milestones for this podcast. Every single time that I come on, I mention uh, exactly how many number of days that I have left until the exam. Something new always seems to happen. But today is an important milestone, a shift. Today, I stopped reading. I have two weeks left until the exam. I've read most of the books on my list, and those books that I haven't read are going to mysteriously float away. Um, And it's time now for me to put down the books and instead start to look over my notes and make big stories about the things that I've been discussing. I need to do kind of two acts of juggling right now. First is I need to think up of the really big stories that matter for every single list. And the second thing is I need to connect those really big stories with individual authors and facts and arguments uh, so that I can sound like I know what I'm talking about. Today, however, we're going to be finishing up our mini-series on uh, nine questions about the 18th century. Today, we're going to be talking about consumer society. And just a meta note before I jump into it, uh, in this podcast, I'm trying something a little bit different, a little bit different focus. Previous podcasts are around 20 minutes long. They're uh, pretty exploratory. I mention a lot of facts and stories. I get a lot, give a lot of context. But that's kind of not the greatest preparation for the oral exam because each list I'll only get 20 minutes to talk about. So each answer should be condensed down to three minutes and organized in such a way that if my examiner cuts me off or you know uh, pushes me somewhere, I've still gotten my main point out. So I've been having to rethink the way that I formulate these things rather than you know talk for a long time about a bunch of facts and you know general themes and then only later coming up with a big idea. I need to put my big idea up first and then quickly go over the uh, data that that backs it up. So this, the penultimate question of uh, this mini-series, is how did world trade affect everyday life and how did everyday life affect world trade? I wanted this question to be a way of understanding one of these trends in 18th century British life, the rise of consumer society. So over the 18th century, because of increased national and international trade, and because of a tendency for some people to work harder to produce goods for the open market, people started to have access to a wider range of goods. Exchange for these goods was increasingly done at shops rather than markets, um, and it was done for credit rather than for barter. Um, The goods themselves changed as well. Increasingly, they were domestic and comfortable. These included tropical groceries, uh, which one by one over the time period moved from luxury to necessity, sugar, tea, coffee, chocolate, but it also included comfortable stuff like plates, bookshelves, belt buckles, books, and clothing. Why should we care about this rise of consumer society? What does it do to our understanding of history? Well, 
one way we can use consumer society as a lens to look how everyday life affects international trade and how international trade affects everyday material life. There's a number of uh, commodities whose paths that we could follow who show us this. One great example is tea. One of the reasons why tea grew so popular in Britain over this time period was that the East India Company um, could get tea from China. And because of particular ways the taxes were levied, it was cheaper than other kinds of drinks. Another story, uh, which is not a particularly British story, but is one in which British trade networks play an incredibly important uh, role, is the spread of manioc, also known as ca uh, tapioca or cassava, a, uh, a root vegetable that uh, originated in Brazil amongst the Tipu people. Manioc spread uh, along the same paths of trade that the slave trade did. Um, so as Portuguese traders took Africans from Africa and brought them to Brazil to work on sugar plantations to make sugar for the European economy, they fed uh, their Africans manioc. And when they went on their boats over to Africa to pick up slaves, they took manioc along with them. And the manioc started to spread internally through Africa. Uh, you know, presaging the advent of the uh, slave trade. Furthermore, in the 19th century, manioc spread to uh, China and uh, Southeast Asia, where it became a cash crop, where people grew it to sell in the international market. And it was there uh, that it actually entered the British market, the British uh, diet, when it was pitched as a easy to eat, um, starchy uh, uh, substance for people of weak digestion like children. So here we have changes in international trade, changes in the scope of, of uh, uh, how much people are able to get done at distances that are affecting the very basic thing of, of everyday life, what people eat as their staple crop. Another way we can look at this is just in the rise of stuff. Um, in 1675, for instance, looking at probate inventories, uh, which are basically wills when people die, we can see that nobody in London, no household owned uh, utensils for tea and coffee. Fifty years later, a quarter of all households uh, had uh, China for tea and coffee. So here the story is the adoption of new kinds of products leads to new ways of consuming and new ways of working that increasingly tie people into national and international markets. This story is also important as a way of orienting us to economic changes uh, that don't have as their big story the machine-driven industrial revolution. Looking at the rise of consumer society allows us to see 18th century Britain as part of uh, an advanced organic society uh, marked by increasing complexity, increasing um, density of housing, increasing work, uh, increasing sophistication, without ever escaping the limits of uh, Malthusian economy. Uh, if we look at this, the economic growth perspective, uh, Britain from 1470 to 1840 has the same slow rate of growth, and this increase in the consumer society is part of that growth. Also, the uh, attention paid to consumer society has a political critique, both for people at the time and for us as scholars. So 
part of what contemporaries recognized about the international trade and goods that showed up on their tables was that it was tied in with unequal ways of producing and consuming stuff. The great metaphor for this was sugar and anti-slavery. Uh, people recognized very quickly that the um, new tasty commodity of sugar was produced in incredibly inhumane conditions. And this started people to think of ways in which they could politicize their consumption, in which they could think about the things that they were buying, not merely as, you know, actions of a market that is moral in itself, but rather as something that they could talk about uh, as a object of morality. And this sort of consumer push was not politically inert. Um, over the 18th century, this drive for new markets, for new commodities, uh, pushed people into wars. In the Seven Years' War, for example, Britain and France are dueling um, on a very, very important respect for control over sugar islands. It's this taste for sugar that's driving them to colonize Caribbean islands and in turn fight each other. Um, in the 19th century, uh, desire for um, guano, which is an exotic uh, good that helps agricultural production, in turn leads to a large Pacific war. Finally, we can make a contemporary political critique about this. We can say that many of the international problems that we're going to face over the next hundred years have at their core um, two facts. The first fact is that rich people, um, most people in the first world and many people in the third world, have been consuming a lot of stuff, and an equally large amount of stuff. They're eating more meat, they have more objects, they read more books, they throw out more stuff, uh, they fill their landfills faster, and this push of consumption because it's so ingrained in changes in the energy regime, are going to cause environmental catastrophe. The second big thing is that to make sure that the trade routes and factories and um, economics uh, 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 organizations that uh, undergird this trade in commodities leads to the threat of war. And this was true in the 18th century as well. So we can see the 18th century as the beginning of a new kind of political age where a lot of politics is about consumption. Finally, the idea of consumption and consumer society is, is actually important for people at the time. It changes the way that they uh, live their day-to-day -day lives, and also it allows them to do new kinds of things and becomes itself like a object of political contention. So uh, the rise of the consumer society has been uh, associated with changes in the way that politics gets done. Um, we can see the rise of uh, Wilkes-like associational um, trade goods as an example of this. So John Wilkes, uh, people uh, celebrated him by toasting his health in uh, pubs, drinking beer, uh, with specially made uh, mugs that had his picture on them. Um, they would eat from specially made commemorative Wilkes plates. They would use uh, chamber pots that were specially decorated to uh, emphasize the Wilkes point. Furthermore, Wilkes's ideas were spread by a consumer society of newspapers, tracts, and pamphlets. Uh, the ideas that Wilkes represented, people didn't get face-to-face. Uh, -face. 
they got it through media that was happening through a consumptive process. Furthermore, we get the new idea of a quickening pace of fashion. Some people have identified this as a peculiarly European development, that only in Europe did fashion get so fast so quickly. Uh, Braudel, for example, says that um, whereas in the 18th century in China, people are still wearing the same kinds of clothes that they were in the 15th century, in the 18th century in Europe, there is now a fashion treadmill that people have to uh, uh, run. So in 1710, for instance, um, there is a pace of fashion. We can see like a, a fashion generation, but it takes about 10 years to get through. Styles change about every 10 to 12 years. Um, by 1770, this change of fashion is seen as annual. There are annual fashions. Um, we have new fashions in pottery, furniture, fabrics, cutlery, wallpaper, flowers, and animals. These are in part spread by newspapers that uh, advertise these large range of new consumer goods and also by new classes of service people, retailers whose job it is is to sell these kinds of new things. Um, another way we can look at this is in furniture. Uh, in the 17th century, people inherited most of their furniture. In the 18th century, they might buy it uh, on marriage to furnish a new house. In the 19th century, uh, middle-class people are buying new furniture about every seven years to, uh, you know, refurbish their households. Finally, uh, we can see in the rise of fashion in consumer society a new space of interpersonal competition. One of the things that's driving um, this new fashion-oriented material life is the fact that people want to distinguish themselves from one another. Uh, we can imagine in that big gigantic hierarchy of status ranging from king to commoner that uh, people are increasingly interested in making sure that everybody knows that they're doing better than everybody else. And they're increasingly doing this from participating in these new kinds of polite uh, modes of consumption. And this meant that people talked about it a lot. People were worried about what this new kind of luxurious consumer society was doing to people. They recognized that commerce was going to change the way that people interacted with one another. But they were also concerned that it would rub away the, you know, virtues of what being an Englishman was, that it would soften the martial virtues of the warrior people that they were and make them just kind of a feat luxurious, uh, you know, asthetes. Um, there is, of course, a uh, another trend of this. We can see this in Bernard Mandeville, a Dutch uh, uh, immigrant to London who wrote a perverse poem. It's perverse because it's both very badly written and it is uh, expressing some kind of odd ideas called The Fable of the Bees, which we can sum up by this. Uh, private vice is public virtue. Um, we can think of this as Keynesianism before Keynes. Um, the idea is, is that Mandeville says, look, the economy is pushed by the vices of the rich. The rich go off and they spend all this money on all this dumb stuff, but it employs people and helps people make money. And so if we want to improve the economy, if we want everybody to be better off, we should get the rich to be more vicious, to spend more stuff, to buy more things, to drink more. And this is in part what was happening. However, there was a deep-seated moral critique of these new kinds of 
uh, forms of consumption and the new people who were consuming these things. And it lasted for a very long time. One of the reasons for the first census in 1801 was that people were worried that this new commercial society was enervating the population so much that the country was shrinking. Of course, they'd realize very quickly that that was actually not the case, that the population was growing faster than it ever had gone before in the entire history of Britain. But they believed that the um, influence of luxury and consumption were undermining the very population of society. So that was 16 minutes. I think that I can probably whittle it down to three, maybe. Uh, tell me what you think. Uh, text me on uh, uh, Twitter uh, at Mackie Teacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Thank you to Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. Uh, you can check out Jonathan Lear's uh, Bandcamp uh, where you can pay him money, and he's also on SoundCloud. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, send me some sort of message. Do those things that you do to things on the internet that you like. Uh, this afternoon, I'm going to be talking about the rise of the middle class, and then we're going to move on to some more general questions. Thanks very much for